Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. I'm very happy to announce the extension of our podcast sponsorship, the Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Dr. Sturette is a movement and mobility coach for players in the NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA, plus a doctor of physical therapy. Kelly has created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach. And if you haven't tried this, you got it. It's so simple. Every day, Virtual Mobility Coach gives you the guided videos and walks you through it step by step using Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve range of motion, and improve performance. Since coming on board as a sponsor, I've had a lot of listeners, including my own clients, my own athletes, who have been using these protocols on a daily basis, and we have seen an increase in recovery from training session to training session. What does that let me do as a coach? It lets me train them a little harder. It lets me push them a little bit harder. So you got to try it. It's completely free for two weeks. If you decide to continue, you can get an additional 10% off for life. You just have to use the promo code PROJECT10. Again, the promo code is PROJECT10 to use the Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach a sponsor of the Project Fitness Podcast. So I'm just like, I, I left them to the wolves. I said, good luck. <laughs> Whatever happens, happens. Fingers crossed, right? That's right, brother. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on here. I, I've been a big fan of yours for, for many years. And I came across you in like 2003 or four. I think I just graduated high school. And you wrote an article, one of your Teen Nation articles, and it was like the seven things to do in the gym. I just remember one of them being like, don't train just your mirror muscles, train what you can't see. You remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember being like, oh shit, I'm the guy who just trains what you can see. Yeah. And, and that Everybody was like, like that at first though. Yeah. That was like one of the first things that ever really stuck out to me was you were the first person I, I heard that. And I was like, you know, 18, 19 years old. And I've been a trainer now, you know, since 2005. So <laughs> it's really hit home. So thank you so much for coming on the Project Fitness Podcast. Well, well to be honest, it's the right timing because with, we're in lockdown again here. So I have way too much time on my hands. So anything, any occasion to, or opportunity to talk about training, uh, that just makes my day a lot more bearable. Mm-hmm. Either that or, or just do like drawing stuff with my kids. So sometimes you do need variation. Yeah. Your kids are great. I agree. I mean, this podcast has been out for over a year. It started last year because of the lockdown. When I originally was just doing conference calls with friends and then booking consults with other fitness pros just to have conversations. And then someone just suggested, they're like, hey, like people would want to hear some of this information. Why don't you start a podcast? So it kind of came to be. So I'm in a similar boat, especially we're locked down over in Ontario. So, you know, I booked a whole bunch for the next two weeks because we're not going anywhere. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be more than two weeks, I think, because let, let's be honest, it, it, they are doing this only to protect the uh, the healthcare system, right? So that it won't become overloaded. And every year, cases just skyrocket in the winter, not even talking about COVID, right? So, so it, you compound that with the situation at hand. I don't see things opening up until end of May. And that's being generous, in my opinion. I have a a decent home gym. So personally, I, I'm fine because I'm antisocial. I don't like people in general. And I, I don't like, to, I don't need to see them. Benefit is because we actually can't get visitors. So my in-laws can't drop in, which <laughs> is like a big win. 
Uh, but still, I mean, it's going to be nice to be able to see people again. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally understand. Some people are thriving with this. I mean, if you're more of the introvert person or uh, if you had a lot of work to get done, you never got around to it, projects, now's the time. There's no excuse for a lot of people in that sense. Absolutely. And when you go to home gym, you can, you can still train and probably set new training goals and stuff. Like, have you modified some of your training goals just based on the idea that you're at home? But not, not because of the, uh, mm-hmm. not because of the lockdown, just because I, all, I always function by goals. Uh, and that's something that people uh, are recording just because there yeah, yeah. might be some decent stuff like so. Yeah, man. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe. Okay. Uh, I, I always function uh, by excitement and by goals. If I don't have a specific goal and people don't notice, I'm the shittiest eater in, you, in the world and I'm a lazy trainer. Now, I love training, but training without a specific goal, I just... I, I want to try new stuff all the time. My, wa- my mind wander to the workout because I want to try a different technique. So it's never productive, right? Mm-hmm. So all, all the best progress I make is when I have a specific goal. So for example, uh, the preceding two years, uh, my, my first goal about two years ago was to get back in golf shape because I used to be a con- competitive golfer and I haven't played for about uh, 23 years. When I started mm-hmm. Olympic weightlifting, I, I stopped golfing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get back into it, mostly in the, the long drive aspect interest in me because it's pure power, right? Uh, so I spent the whole winter of two years ago just like trying to improve rotational strength, rotational power, and mobility, of course. I, I actually built a simulator in my home so I could actually practice and get some data. Uh, and that was my whole thing. And I, I did play the whole summer. It went decently well. Couldn't like crap but anyway uh and how are the long balls how are the drives uh, decent the, the only thing is that i i i spent the whole winter just getting back into golf shape i had not started the like, speed work yet mm-hmm. so i was still decent but but not to the point where i wanted to be then after the season was done i started preparing for the next season so I, my goal was to increase my swing speed as much as possible so I tested out at, at roughly 112 miles an hour, which is like low average for the PGA Tour, for example, mm. which is not slow, but not fast either. So I spent the whole winter doing specific power work, a lot more plyometrics, a lot more jumping, uh, got back into the Olympic lifts. And I also did a lot of over speed work. So that's like golf-like sticks that weighs less than your uh, your driver, so you can actually swing faster, teaching the nervous system to go faster, kind of like what we do in track and field, like shot put and stuff like that, baseball. So I actually brought my my swing speed from 112 to 133, which would be pretty not not fast for a long driver, fast for a golfer. Uh, then my wife got pregnant, so it was well. There's no way I'm going to be playing golf this summer, right? Yeah. Uh, but in the process uh, of getting back into golf shape, I started squatting heavy again. So I said, well, my goal, my next goal would be, I want to squat over 500 again, which mm-hmm. I had not done in a while because I was doing mostly bro work. Mm-hmm. And so my, my whole training was devoted solely for, for squat, for like I was squatting three days a week, minimal upper body work because, because I'm getting older my recovery capacity is lower. So if I really want to like drive that squat up, I needed to reduce overall stress. Chris Duffin did something similar. We were talking a, a few while I was training my squat and he was training for his uh, doing a thousand pounds for reps on squat. So we don't mm-hmm. exactly add the same goal, but you know, uh, and he told that. me that all he did was squatting. 
So he only did that one squat workout a week and didn't do anything else because his body just couldn't could handle it. Okay. So I did I, I did work up to 525 on a safety bar squat, which is probably equivalent to 550. In, in I remember right watching you, you document. You were, I remember seeing you take 455 on the safety, and yeah. you did a post. And you're like, I haven't done this in a while. Yeah. They took it for a triple or something. So that was probably on your way to 525. Yeah, I I, I did five. I I did five for. A single rep. I, I, my goal was to do three because it was moving super fast. I mean, the 500 was like up in 0.6 meter per second, which is like normally a weight you would have, you would be able to do for like 60%, 70%. Uh, I did 525 for a single, didn't film it uh, because honestly, I'm not, sh- I, I wasn't sure it was going up. <laughs> I, I heard it anyway, but so, so I actually only posted about the 500 because I don't, you know, if you don't, don't have it on video. It didn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways, I did 525. And then I, I, I lost my motivation mm-hmm. because I achieved exactly what I wanted to do. Like my best squat when I was competing in weightlifting was 550, 585. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was with wraps. So my best, like completely raw was 550, which, well, that's pretty close. So you know what? Mm-hmm. I, I'm there. Uh, then I got kind of pudgy to get there, right? So my next goal was uh, I just need to get back in shape. So I, I, I trained more like a mixed martial artist, lots of loaded carries, conditioning work. And I said, well, you know what? If I diet like a bit better, I could get into photo shoot shape. So I, I turned into photo shoot mode, right? My wife only gave me six weeks because you know, I, she didn't want me to be more than six weeks to be completely unbearable and have low energy and not be able to participate in anything in the house. So I actually was extremely excessive with the diet. Extremely, and because I, I can, I say, there's no way I can train full on with the caloric intake I have. So I'm going to only train the, the show muscles. So I, I did exactly the opposite than the article you mentioned. I only trained shoulders, arms, and chest. That's all I did for, for six weeks so that I could actually recover. Mm-hmm. But I figured, well, you know what? I just did squat exclusively for eight weeks. So it kind of balances itself out. So that's fine. Then I was looking for a different goal. Uh, I'm more performance-oriented than physique-oriented, even though people don't get that because I was branded as more of a body composition specialist by T Nation for, for marketing purposes. But I'm, but I'm first and foremost a strength coach. What they, what they tried to do with me was exactly what they did with Charles Pollock a few years back. So Charles was a strength coach working with Olympic athletes, pro athletes, and they asked him to write bodybuilding or body composition articles using athletic methods and that caught fire because he was the only one talking that language so they tried to recreate the exact perfect storm it it worked but not as well obviously because by that time the market was flooded with such coaches anyway so i'm more interested in performance so my my performance now is i want to beat my best 40 yards time before i'm 45 which would be next november so my whole training is based on increasing power, increasing speed. Obviously, because well, Canada snow. I I, I don't have access to a, an indoor track here, at least not nearby. So my training is mostly plyometric, loaded jumps, Olympic lifts, some strength work. What I do is more of a, like a Charlie Francis-like periodization, whereas I have strength blocks in my periodization. So right now I'm in my, my general training, which would be more power oriented. So let's say I have four workouts. It's four purely power workouts. 
Even the lifting, it's at very high speeds. So anywhere between 0.8 to 1.2 meters per second, depending on the day, using bands, chains, and stuff like that. The more, the more band, and that's one, the first information worthy of maybe taking note for people listening. Uh, when you want to work on power, add more bands and more chains and use less bar weight because you can actually create a lot more speed and the bands will stop at the end, but you can still try to accelerate. There was a study conducted at uh, the Institut National des Sports in France uh, comparing purely weight training with same movements using uh, um, hydraulic resistance, which acted kind of like, or pneumatic resistance, which acted like bands, mm -hmm. increasing resistance at the end of range of motion. And the bar weight led to much greater strength gains and the, the pneumatic strength work led to 10% more power gains at a roughly the same level of our average load. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's what I'm doing right now. And that's basically three, four, one strength, power to strength ratio. Then in my strength blocks, which only last three weeks because my strength is sufficient, uh, I, I reverse that ratio. So three workouts where my focus is on strength and one which is emphasizing more power. I have three such blocks in my prioritization until May, and in May the sprint training will actually start. Uh, that, that, that's pretty wild. I mean, let's, let's rewind everything here. Your first goal was you want to get back into golf and you want to increase your drive. So you're using metrics such as your speed of rotation or speed of swing. Measured it, trained, increased it, boom. Did yeah. some squatting, said, hey, next goal, let's go on to squatting. Want to get to 500, got 525, didn't get on camera, but it went really good. From there, he said, okay, now let's take the next really goal. Good. The 500 was easy. Okay. 525 was, was like not up to my standards because even when I lift heavy, I normally lift fast. Mm -hmm. I'm what Dave Tate calls a, a speed lifter. I'm not a strong lifter. I, all, no I use power for it. doesn't go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's acceleration. It's stretch reflex. Um, so 525 was ugly for, by my standards. It probably looked fine if I had filmed it. But I said, well, there's no way I can repeat that effort. Not today. Yeah. And because I actually have ach I achieved it, I lost the motivation. Mm -hmm. it again, so I needed to switch something else. Then photo shoot. Got ripped, had six weeks to do it, did the mere muscles, satisfied the wife with only six weeks work. Now we're training for sprinting and you're doing all your training indoors because you're back. It's Canada. So you're using biometrics, speed specific drills, and then you're going to hit the track in May. Are we caught up to date now with your goals? Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. That's a lot, man. Yeah. And there's, and there's so much to take from that stuff there. And what caught my eye right away was you were talking squatting and then you're talking power and you're talking speed. And I sent you a message a few weeks ago because you were um, um, you coached Naomi Shepard. Yeah, right. And I was like, hey, this is pretty amazing to see her lift and stuff. I'm really interested to talk about your coaching philosophy and your coaching approach with a power lifter. Because I'm sure you probably utilize chains, bands, speed, overload work. And, and how would you manipulate some of that stuff? So so how did you how did you start working with Naomi? And then because I know her numbers like yeah. You can see everyone where they start and where they end up, right? So her best quote, what you said, she did 265? Yeah, she, she's going to, her goal right now, she's competing. And this, I, the 265, and I'm not saying that as an excuse, but her prep, well, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Like she had COVID. Uh, the competition was postponed three times. Yeah. Uh, one was canceled. Uh, and she was like, because of that, she had, and she always had problems with her weight. So she had been dieting on a caloric restriction for like 12 weeks straight. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So the fact that she did 265 is pretty amazing. We were shooting actually for 272, which mm-hmm. we will hit at the next competition in five weeks. Yeah. It, it, oh, it, it, I was shooting for like, like 135 on bench, 270, 272 on squat. Her deadlift, which has been her nemesis for a long time, now it's back up. So we're shooting for 225-ish on that lift, yeah. uh, which would rank her pretty well as uh, like a 63-kilo lifter. Yeah. And I mean, just using the uh, like open power lifting and stuff, I mean, I think she's in top 30 overall all time. Like yeah, all yeah. She's okay. number one in the UK all time, male or female on, on belts on Wix formula. Yeah. Uh, now I, the, the way I got to work with her is actually I started working with her, her husband first, Tom, mm. uh, who's also a part of Think Coach. Uh, and the reason he contacted me is that, well, he is a, himself a pretty good coach in the UK, has tons of lifters there. And he said, well, Chris, you're the only guy that I would actually trust my training with because uh, I agree with most of what you're saying. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I worked for him, with him for like three years. Uh, we worked up to a 220 kilo bench press, uh, no, 202 kilo bench press, sorry. And now he's doing like 195 at, at 92 kilos. So it's mm-hmm. decent. I mean, he's, he's a much better coach than he is a lifter. Yeah. Uh, and then I started working with Naomi and he, he's doing the uh, like in-person coaching because I'm not going to like fly to the UK every week to train her. A long time. Stuff like that. But yeah, it's yeah. been like uh, a year and a half or two years now. Yeah. So where was Naomi when you, when you started and then what did you do to get her where she is now? Well, she, she's honestly, I mean, I, I, I can't claim to have made her because she was a tremendous lifter way before that. She was like squatting to 40-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was pressing 115, 110, and she was deadlifting 200. So she was a, a very solid lifter right away. And the training, it, it's hard to say exactly what we did. I can tell you what we were doing now because it, it, it always evolves depending on what needs to be done, depending on how she's evolving as a lifter. For example, the, the best uh, thing I could say is, or the best example of how it changed is now she has a lot less lifting, a lot less lifting, a lot more, lot more rest days, a lot less volume, but mm-hmm. more intensity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we started out, she was lifting four days a week, five, four, like three heavy days and, and one like more bodybuilding day, like to fill the gaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I normally want, and, and that's something I, I've took from my, my career as a strength coach. And also that I can actually find quite a bit of in, in, in track and field training is that I don't like to have more than one stimulus in a workout. And I understand like the West side where you have uh, like you have your heavy work, then you have your assistance work, then you have your very high rep work, and then you have your mm-hmm. dynamic effort day and stuff like that. Personally, I, I can't handle it. Maybe because I'm a more of a power athlete and I have a fragile nervous system. But what I've noticed is that people who are not extremely resilient from a nervous system perspective, when they have more than one stimulus in a workout, mm-hmm. they tend to adapt to a much lesser extent. Progress is much slower and they are much more likely to be drained after that workout. So the main principle that I've had right from the start, it's still the same principle, but we actually reduce the number of methods we're using because we found out exactly what works for and what doesn't work uh, is singleness of purpose at each training session. 
So it's if a workout is based on the power lifts, it's the power lifts. We don't have any assistance working on those workouts, except maybe very early off season. So right from the start, she was squatting, deadlifting, bench pressing three days a week. And all in the same workouts. Okay. Three days a week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then one with an assistance workout. And of course, at first it was hard to do. And I do that with every single athlete I'm working with, like pro football players, uh, hockey players. They, they all train like, the whole body in, in, in the workout. And I'm going to explain briefly why, because I use three different training techniques. Uh, and one day is one technique because I don't want one, more than one type of contraction or one, more than one stimulus in each session. Uh, and I haven't, I've always done that. If you go back to my, my second book, Theory and Application of Modern Strength and Power Method, which was written like 16 years ago, that's exactly the model I'm using. I was using more volume back then, but it's still one, one eccentric day, one isometric day, one concentric day. So I didn't copy call these. My book was out six years before it is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we started out with the three power lifts. It was hard at first because, well, power lifters are not known for their work capacity. Yes. Uh, so it drove her into the ground, but very quickly she rebounded. And the benefit of that is, you know, what a contest, a competition is just another day now mm-hmm. because every workout day you train the three power lifts. So, so you train your body to be able to withstand that type of stress in one day. Now, the thing is that that's a hell of a day. It, yeah. it, it drains you. That's why I, I want to limit how demanding the workouts are in the nervous system by only using three exercises, by only using one method per workout, and also by having more rest days than training days. So we started out with three workouts. So it was Monday was eccentric emphasis. On Wednesday, it was isometric emphasis, which is the easier day. And on Friday, it was a concentric emphasis, which was the, like the regular heavy lifting or the overload, depending on the phase. And then we had a, a down day, which was the one isolation or one assistance exercise for each lift based on what our weaknesses were. Mm-hmm. So the method would vary depending on the phase we were in. It's always paradise, of course. So the, for example, the eccentric day, we would start with slow eccentrics. Then the next phase would be uh, eccentrics overload, but not exceeding our 1RM during the eccentric. And then the last phase would be eccentric overload with more weight than she could actually lift. So, so is there a concentric component or just the eccentric? Like she oh, we, we, had, we had a concentric component. We had a concentric component. So I, I was using weight releasers. Mm-hmm. So on squad, you have the weight releasers. You can have 100, 115% during the eccentric, they release, and you have 80% the concentric, always trying to accelerate as much as possible. Now, I have various ratios of eccentric versus concentric weight, depending on what quality I want to, I want to train. So for a powerlifter, it's not going to be the same as a, a football player or a bobsleigh athlete, for example. Okay. On, on the isometric day, uh, it, it was also more of a statodynamic day, so including pauses during the lifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, very rarely do we do exclusively isometric work, like pushing against spin, or, or that would be like more of an activation before heavy lifting, not a training method in itself, because I don't find that it transfers that well. Mm-hmm. Functional isometrics, where you have a load on the bar, which is roughly 90% of your max on that lift, and then you push against spins to simulate a sticking point. That's mm-hmm. useful, but that can only be done for two or three weeks, no more. After that, you actually stop regressing because you lose your speed. 
And then the concentric, it was just regular periodization, starting with, with uh, normally sets of six, then a phase of sets of three, then three to one waves, then just going up. And if we needed more volume, we do cluster sets. We, I, I don't like going high on reps for, for powerlifters or anybody in, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we started out that way and it worked pretty well. But eventually what I found is that as she, as she got stronger, she just couldn't handle it. She mm-hmm. just couldn't recover. Uh, she was going up. Her hmm? lift actually kept going up. That's the thing. And, and, and that's, that's why I know that she is just built for powerlifting. And I can't claim to be responsible for where she's at, she's at because she's the kind of girl who could probably train any way she wanted for strength and, and be great at the powerlift because she's built for them. Uh, she was uh, like tremendously fatigued. She had thyroid issues. She was always on a deficit, very low carb, trying to make weight, and her lifts were still going up. Not mm-hmm. as fast as, as at first, but they were still going up, or at least not going down. Mm-hmm. But she was feeling like crap. I mean, one thing that I do with every athlete I train, and I've done that for a long time, every day they need to send me uh, several like data points. Uh, for example, their body weight, uh, their, how they are feeling on a scale of, of 1 to 10 as far as feeling good or not on that day. Mm-hmm. Not even including training, just how did you feel on that day? And then on a scale of one to 10, how did you rate the quality of the, of the workout? They need to set that every single day. Now with the, the, the Whoop uh, device, they can actually send me their recovery status, which is even better. Uh, but I always go with how, how recovered they are because a sport that is reliant on a strong neuro, uh, neuro, neurological impulse, a strong excitatory drive, Mm-hmm. And high recruitment of the fast twitch fibers, you can't train on the fatigue nervous system. The first thing that goes when the nervous system is less capable of sending that strong drive is the capacity to recruit the fast switch fibers and have a high firing rate, which are key for strength, power, and speed. So I, I, we need to modulate that. And, and that's when I start, well, we need to decrease the amount of heavy lifting for her. So we actually drop the eccentric overloads. I mean, they were really beneficial, but now she was to a point where she was handling such heavy weights that it became an excessive systemic stress. Mm-hmm. On squats, when she had to walk out because she didn't have a monolith back then. So you have to walk out with, with weight releasers that swings forward and backward with like 280. And she's still like a, a 63 kilo female. Yeah. So it's not, and it was like just tremendous stress on, on, on the core and on the nervous system. The, the stress factor of walking out with that weight just by itself, that, that was killing her. So we dropped the eccentric. You see, that, you see that in powerlifting too. You see when you compete in different federations, monolift lifters versus um, lifters where you have to walk it out. You can just look at the record books and you see the numbers are different. I mean, like when you get up to the max of the max of the max, it takes energy to walk it out. Absolutely. And then you got to lift it. And not just the energy walking out. That's one thing that people understand. The, pe- the thing that they don't understand, there are two other factors. The first one is when you have to walk out alone or when you have to unrack and place a bar for you by yourself on bench, oftentimes you will get out of position slightly mm-hmm. and you might not be able to create that tension that, that's needed for maximum performance. It might only be like a 2 or 3% difference in tightness or just being slightly out of position maybe one foot is turned out slightly more but when you're going for the max that's enough to completely first kill your performance because it affects your technique but it also affects your confidence because let's say you have a yeah 
270 on, on your back and you realize, you know what, my right foot is slightly more forward. But you know that trying to bring it back, you know what, you are on the clock. You have a heavy ass weight on your back. The longer you hold it, the weaker you get. So you have to go for it. And it just like saps your confidence. And also just the fact that you have to walk out the weight actually creates a stress. Mm -hmm. And as you know, when it comes to maximal lifting, oftentimes the lifts are missed before you even start the lift. Just when you unrack the bar, how it feels on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, that's why monolift will actually allow you to lift more. And that's why in training, I like as much as possible during the off season. Especially even with lifters, especially with lifters, you are competing with a monolift. I want them to walk their squat out as long as possible. Just to practice. Yeah, exactly. And to strengthen that core. It's, a, it's one thing I learned when I was playing football. Uh, always train in worse conditions than you compete in. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's something I, I, I always think with me. So we drop the eccentric. Powerlifting is such a different sport. I mean, you're always, you can't play defense in powerlifting. No. Like you can't defend someone else doing something like other sports. Right. And powerlifting is the only sport where the training environment is optimal, but the competition environment is not, right? Because yeah. you can choose when you want to get up and go. You can choose when your rest period's over. You can choose which bar you use, but then you get to a competition and you get what's presented there. You don't know who the spotters and loaders are. You don't know this stuff. So you have to kind of go with what you have. So if you train in worst environments. I understand that a good friend of mine, uh, a classic lifter and equipped lifter. He told me a story once of he was doing a bunch of equipped lifting for a few years. Randomly, he jumped into a, a raw classic competition and he stands up with the squat weight and he walks it out and he's standing there. And then the referee says squat. So now he can't move anything. And he looks at his feet and he's in his equipped stance, which is super wide. Oh, yeah. and he, he squats narrow classic. And he's just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. So he went for it. He missed it. But he's like, that, that, that's what you do. Like, what else are you going to do in that situation? Right? Yeah. And even factors like, like what does, like, what's in front of you looks like? If there are people, if it's a setting you're not used to. Some people are not affected by that at all. Some people are heavily affected by that. Yes. So, and people who are easily affected by their environment, I, I encourage them to train them in many different settings. Mm -hmm. If they can actually rotate, well, not now because of lockdown, but if they can rotate where they're, they're training, different equipment, different seatings, uh, different people around, different music, so that they can actually develop their capacity to adapt to the unknown, mm -hmm. then you're actually going to be better on competition day. But, but to get back to what we're doing now, I, over the two years, I found myself doing less and less and less work with it. Because again, I wanted to be fresher and, and not just like do more volume. Anyway, I, I strongly believe that volume or the amount of work is useful to build tissue, build tendons and build muscle. That, that's the main use for me for volume. And she's already at the top of her weight class. We don't want her bigger. No. So there's no she's sense in trying too. to add tissue. Pardon? Yeah, she's pretty lean too. She doesn't have a lot of chub to lose. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she, she could be leaner. I mean, she's typical like female body who doesn't abuse androgens she she's like fairly lean upper body but she has more fat in the lower body so she could probably lose like five more kilos uh but her, her performance would suffer because actually her legs being so short and, and stubbier because mm -hmm. she might listen to the podcast <laughs> uh it creates compression right when you're squatting down it creates support when your hamstrings can contact your calves Yep. and compress that tissue, it's support. Mm -hmm. It acts kind of like a squat suit. 
So it yeah. gives you that rebound in the bottom. That's uh, why the super heavies are always out squatting their deadlifts, right. right? They've got these big old bellies that are assisting with the bottom position. Yeah. Hamstrings, calves are going to make contact, and and they out squat their deads, and the the super lightweights out deadlift their squats by significant. Well, 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 she's the same. She's the same way though. She's obviously not a super heavyweight, but she she's squatting like fifty kilos more than she's deadlifting. Mm-hmm. For the same reason, but in her case, it's because the way her, her legs are built and the thickness, so it can actually create that compression that gives her a big bounce in the bottom. Mm. So, so what we are doing now is we only have one heavy workout every five days, uh, and obviously that's again a whole day of training, a whole uh, the whole competition training. So squat, bench, deadlift. Oftentimes in two sessions, we normally do squat and bench in the first workout four hours rest deadlift after that okay so in the same day yeah yeah that's what i'm saying she always trained the three power lifts on the same day but whatever you're saying she would squat and bench and then come back for a second session to do just the deadlift yeah well it's just from a a, a time perspective because she either has other stuff to do but also from a, a neurological recovery perspective because uh, anyway it does prepare better for meets which can run forever yes uh, and, and i think a skill that power lifters need to have and people, people understand the lifting people understand how to get stronger for most for most part. i mean and not no system is really better than than any other when it comes to building strength i mean some might have some advantages for some lifters like west side will be great from some types of list of lifters while conjugate uh, uh, more of a like the east european lifters like where you train mostly the competitive lift norwegian approach with a very high frequency will better fit some lifters etc etc dan green who does only one or two heavy sessions but the rest is lots of bodybuilding work that will favor another type of lifter so it, it all works unless you do complete something completely stupid or hire joel seaman as a, as a part of thing coach um so i actually love joel we're good, we're good friends so i'm just pulling his leg um so the main difference is the extras. What other, we talked about the walkout, the confidence aspect, but other uh, also changing gym so you can develop the capacity to adapt to changing environments. Uh, another one could be, you know what? You need to be able to turn your adrenaline on and off. Mm. That's a big skill, big skill, because you need to amp yourself up for the big lifts but if you stay up, you're going to burn out. Your mm-hmm. adrenergic receptors, by the end of the day, they're shot. They're desensitized. They're downregulated. You can't produce adrenaline anymore. And it, you, you, you just die on your last lift, right? Even mm-hmm. sometimes sooner than that. Sorry, does it ever, as you talk, I'm getting all these different thoughts and questions. I know someone else is probably thinking it. So when you coach powerlifting for a training protocol, two questions here. One is after the heavy day, like you mentioned with Naomi, she had the one big day. My assumption is a lot of adrenaline that day. How do you program the following day? Yeah. And then the next question is when someone does a competition and obviously adrenaline goes through the roof, yeah. what does programming look like the following week? Yeah. Well, for, for, for what she's doing now on the day after the heavy day, the first day afterwards is just to make use every tool possible to speed up recovery. So it could be massages. It could be a uh, uh, dry needle work. It could be, um, saunas it could be uh ice baths uh normally she has more calories uh, and try to get the lowest stress possible that's the first day after now what she's doing now and that's not my understand that i don't have a system mm-hmm. i build the approach depending on the need of the athlete uh, 
so that's the first day after. Then what we do is we have another workout. So that's two days, the second day after the big workout, which would be working on core. Uh, again, not abs. It's like farmer's walk. It's Zercher carries. Mm -hmm. I'm going to post a video of her yesterday, which when she's doing Zercher walks on a hip belt squat machine. Oh. which is an absolutely amazing core exercise because at her level, her core is, even though it's strong, it's still lagging behind her legs on squat. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. People who are built to squat normally need a lot more core strength than people who are built to deadlift. The reason is that people who are built to squat will have shorter legs, longer torso, shorter arms. Mm -hmm. And that longer torso First, because of their squatting style, they need to stay more upright, right? Yep. So the moment they lean forward, because the torso is longer, the, when you lean forward, because the torso and head segment is much longer, it creates a lot more demand for the lower back, okay? Mm -hmm. Whereas someone who has a short torso, even if they lean forward, it's still a, sh a short lever. So it doesn't mm -hmm. increase the resistance for the lower back that much. Uh, so, so you need that strong core to stay in position. Uh, so, so, and I, I, I learned that from when I was focusing more on Olympic weightlifting, I was looking at the various types of weightlifters you have. I wrongfully like modeled my technique at first on the Russians because they were like the, the best lift or the Bulgarians because the East European lifters were the best, but they all have long arms, long legs, short torso, which is the opposite of me. Then I looked at the Chinese weightlifters who have short legs, long tibias, long torso, and which is my body type, and they lift completely differently. The way Chinese lifters lift is completely different than the way Russian lifters lift in Olympic weightlifting. Uh, and I realized, well, depending on your body type, you need a different lifting technique and you need different strength and weaknesses. So if you have short, limb, short limbs, you need to really emphasize glutes, lower back, core. Mm -hmm. Because quads, you're going to have quads no matter what. And you're built for quads. So, and for bench, you need more chest. You need more delts. Triceps will come no matter what. Yeah. Uh, so that's what you need. Anyway, so, so on that day, we work on core and we work on weaknesses. So it would be lower back, core, uh, glutes normally. Uh, and, and maybe some pectoral work. But, but what we do then the next day is the – and that's where I think that I'm doing something that probably nobody does in powerlifting. Uh, we use uh, EMS, electrical <coughs> muscle stimulation. So, so she would do EMS uh, for hamstrings. She would do EMS for triceps, EMS for shoulders, depending, with three muscles because it takes like 20, 22 minutes per muscle. So we okay. have three muscles. So that's the, whole, that's the whole training she does. What that does, we do that twice in an eight-day cycle because we have eight days microcycle. We have that twice during microcycle because it actually is volume work. It increases recruitment of fast-switch fibers uh, because it makes those fibers more sensitive to being activated. It preferentially recruit the fast switch fibers. It increases uh, the, the firing rate of those fibers. And it actually can build some muscle. I'm not using it for that because we use a, a strength setting, not a size setting, which would be a shorter rest, longer activation period. But I've noticed a lot of strength gains from, from mm -hmm. this protocol. I, I'm training a bobsleigh guy, same thing. He is freaking out at how fast his squads are getting stronger, how, how fast his, his power snatch is going up. Uh, and I've been using that for, for years. I, I used it when I was competing myself. Uh, so, so we do that. 
And then we have one day off and then we have a second heavy workout. And then we repeat the cycle with rest, with, with maximizing recovery. Then we have the uh, more isolated, lower stress exercises. Then we have EMS. Then we have day rest. Then we start again the cycle. So it's normally we, have, we shoot always for four days in between. So training heavy lifts are every five days. Mm-hmm. And she seems to be progressing a lot faster on that system. She's adding, and we don't do singles anymore. We do doubles. Got rid of the singles. Yeah. Well, we, we'll get the singles like two weeks out. Yeah. That, that's it. Oh. That's it. For several reasons. First, lower neurological impact because of the stress factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, when you unrack a, a 2RM, you, there's no question you will always get that first rep. Mm-hmm. So you always get it. So, so you're, not, you're not stressed out when you unrack the bar because you know you're going to make that first rep no matter what. Okay. And if something goes wrong, if you not, you're not well rested enough, or if you didn't progress fast enough, you know what? Well, just don't do that second rep. Mm-hmm. So you're not stressed out about missing a lift. Okay. So that's the first thing. I don't like lifters to miss lifts in training. It, it just saps their confidence. Uh, and then the approach we use, because that's the second thing we use uh, differently, is we always use an auto-regulation approach. So when she go, she will always work on those big workouts. She will work up to the maximum weight she can do a, a double with, but mm-hmm. with good technique, of course. Okay. And then she lowers the weight by 5%. So 95% of what she just lifted. And she will do as many doubles as possible with that weight, which normally ends up being anywhere between two and five. Okay. And with full rest periods, of course, so like five minutes between sets, uh, four or five minutes. So, so, so the volume of that day is adjusted to her neurological capacities on that day. If she's like wiped out first, the heavy lift will be light, lighter, mm-hmm. which is the first level of regulation. And then the number of sets of doubles she can do afterwards might only be one or two because that's all she can handle because her nervous resources are too low. That's also why I like to have a session, a, a rest period between squat and bench and deadlift. So what concludes when the doubles are done? Is it bar speed you're looking for, technique, or she just verbally would say? Well, if it was an athlete, okay, let's say I'm, I'm training a bobsleigh guy uh, or a football guy, it will be bar speed. So mm-hmm. we, we measure it with um, uh, an encoder device, uh, uh, depending on, on, there are several like pretty good one available now. I, I, I personally uh, prefer just get, let me get the the name of what I'm using here. I have a really bad memory. Uh, yeah, I, I I personally use the uh, Vitruve. Vitruve. Yeah, V I T R U V E, uh, which is like the you know the the Da Vinci man with the arms spread out, and that's yeah. a Vitruve. Anyway, uh, because it's an encoder, it's not a GPS. So there's an actual rope attached to the bar, like the Tendo's unit used to be, which I I was using in 1999. Uh, And that's a lot more reliable than the GPS. Uh, The GPS one has been shown to be highly unreliable at speeds slower than 0.6 meter per second. Yeah. uh, Which is the speed you will work with when you are working with powerlifters. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, with the retrieve one, we get a pretty precise measure. So when I work with more explosive athletes, we use bar speed. Mm-hmm. So for example, I, I, I'll use my example of my own training. 
Okay. Even though my, 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 the focus of my work is plyometric and power work, I still do squat four days a week. I have four workouts a week. So I squat every workout and I will bench press every workout, but the speed is programmed differently every day. So day one is between one and 1.2 meter per second. So bar weight would be like 20% with lots of bands. And the second day will be between 0.8 and one meter per second. So less band weight, a bit more bar weight, like 40-ish percent. Day number three will be between 0.6 and 0.8 meter per second. Again, lighter bands or chains uh, and then more bar weight probably 60, 70%. And then the last day is my strength day, whereas there is minimal, I still use band or chains. I still have some because for my goal is acceleration. So mm-hmm. I always use them uh, just because I'm a naturally explosive athlete. So I need something to decelerate me at the end. Otherwise, I actually learn to decelerate way too much. I mm-hmm. wouldn't use that with everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the next day would be more of a like 0.4 to 0.6 meter per second. Uh, so that's what I use. I, I, I never plan a number of sets for myself. So when I can't maintain that speed, I stop the exercise. Okay? Now, w- w- with powerlifting, w- we, do, we do use those data right now, but just for establishing a baseline. Because mm-hmm. it's powerlifting, I don't really care about bar speed right now as she's competing in six weeks, five weeks. I just want the load to go up with good technique. So if the weight is successful without shifting and bending and cutting depth, then we're good. Mm. I find the bar speed such an interesting tool. I use it a lot when I coach uh, clients. Um, I used to use a push band back at a distance at a distance. When you have online clients, it's super invaluable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because, okay. And that's the thing, right? And, People who are passionate about progressing will be the reason why they are not progressing nine times out of 10. Not because they're lazy, because they do too much. Or they, and that's the thing. Strength is not hypertrophy. You don't need, you should not go to failure or even close to it when training for strength. There, a recent study just came out. They, they, they looked at, and I'm writing an article on that topic, so that's why it's on the top of my head. Uh, they looked at, how the impact of going to failure with lightweights and with heavyweights. With heavyweights, there is zero benefit, zero, versus stopping two reps short of failure. Mm -hmm. For high reps or low weight, then there is a benefit. But that's not what we're doing. Yes, it's not powerful. What we're doing is heavy or it's fast. And if you go heavy or fast, there is no benefit going to failure. In fact, in my opinion, there are several drawbacks. First, you, you learn bad technique. You learn compensation, fa- compensation factors. Uh, you also have a greater risk of converting the 2X muscle fibers into 2A fibers, making you slightly less powerful. Probably worse for speed athletes than powerlifters, but for high for power powerlifters, like fast powerlifters, people like me, or it, it, it goes fast or it doesn't go up, well, that's pretty bad. I, the best example is... I, I trained like a bro for, for a while. And when I got back to heavy lifting, I could actually grind reps. I could never grind reps before. Mm-hmm. And that was like one of the biggest disappointments in my life. Like, Christian, you should be happy. You can do two or three more reps. Well, first, I don't want to do two or three more reps. I hate anything above three reps. Mm-hmm. And second, it tells me that I'm actually less explosive than I was. So, yeah. And now I kind of reverse that. And that's why I like also uh, EMS, electrical muscle stimulation, because it actually improves that conversion toward a faster twitch profile. Mm. 
So make any um, any modifications when you work with female athletes over male athletes. This can be outside of powerlifting in general, but how, how would you modify their training when it comes to like their cycle? Uh, that that's like super complicated. I actually wrote an article about that. Like, of course, I want to say fifteen years ago. Yeah, I, I've written like seven hundred. <laughs> it, it was actually in I for I published like three online magazines called Tib Monthly. Like the. the you Are you still running like T Nation? Like, is that still? Yeah, with the yeah, team? yeah, yeah. I had two articles. I had one article last week, and I, I have three more coming up. I have, uh, what I do is that I I I, use, I I write like body composition articles for T Nation, mm-hmm. and I write performance training articles for my website. So, how many articles do you think you've written in your day? Like well, Nation, I mean, because if you go on, on T Nation, you can actually get a number. So okay. I've written like seven twenty for T Nation. And on my own website, I think I have like 35. Uh, and I have written some articles, like for example, when, when Fred Adfield at his when before he died, I, I, I wrote like three or four articles for Fred. Um, I had some other articles. So it, it's overall probably 800. Fred was supposed to come down here to Ottawa and he was going to put on a seminar and they wanted me to um, be like the MC. <laughs> so it was all set up to go at this guy's gym down the road and they said chris would you just be the guy on the mic introduce him and his handle questions yeah sure it was all set to go and then unfortunately he passed yeah i mean honestly from a, like a powerlifting perspective he's my greatest influence mm-hmm. uh, because I, I i'm i'm a big believer in periodization uh i'm a big believer in overloads we use it differently fred just like held it in place um even like we we don't do that much like assistance work. And when do we do it? It's very early in the cycle. Like for example, right now we, we only do like, like two or three assistance exercises. We'll, we, we did more in the off season. And, and that's, that was, that's always funny because even though we've been doing several preps together, Naomi always freaks out during the off season because I don't want her anywhere near a squat, a bench or a deadlift mm-hmm. for at least two months. We don't squat. We don't bench. We don't deadlift. And that kind of answer will answer like your question about what we do after a competition. Uh, I just want to do something different. And, and it's not actually for a physiological reason. It's mostly for a mental and neurological reason. Also to relieve some stress on the joints and stuff like that. So we do more hypertrophy work. We do more isolated work. And she was freaking out because we didn't lift heavy. And when, we, and when I reintroduced the heavy lift, and that's another thing I do differently than anybody is that when we do reintroduce the competition lift, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because I, uh, when we do a powerlifting cycle, we train the three lifts on the work per, in a workout, right? Mm-hmm. So let's on Monday, we do squat bench deadlift, for example. Uh, but in the off season, it's more a general physical preparation. So we, we use more of a lift specific approach, like prep, like pushing on day one, uh, squatting pattern on day two, on day two. Uh, pulling on day three and uh, let's say deadlifting or hip hinge pattern on day four, for example. And at first we have no big lifts. So it's all reverse cypers, leg curls, uh, farmer's walk, zercher carries, uh, tall kneeling shoulder press, push presses, some Olympic lifts even. Uh, and then when we reintroduce the heavy lifts, the competition lifts, they are done at the end of the workout. Mm. I actually want them to do these lifts in a fatigue state because first, even if, because I know the performance will suck at first mm-hmm. because we, we didn't do any heavy work for about two months. So even though the muscle is there, 
even though you are just as strong as you were, you're not capable of demonstrating that strength because you, lo you lost your neurological, neurological edge. So right off the bat, if you were able to squat 250, you're going to squat 200, and that's going to wreak havoc on your confidence. Mm -hmm. so we put it last. So at first, you can well, you know what? You just did five exercises before. No, no, no wonder you, you didn't perform well. And also because you really have to focus on your technique because everything is tired. Mm -hmm. You need to re-emphasize technique a lot more, okay? Otherwise, you get injured. And then the, that's for like three or four weeks, depending on the athlete. Then it's put in the middle of the workout for three or four weeks. Then we put it at the top. And then we're ready for uh, uh, competition preparation, which will last between eight and 12 weeks, we, where we will train the three lifts on the same day. Almost everything you mentioned today, I've heard of before or variation, like Charlie Francis with the nervous system, right. driving it, you know, and Dr. Fred with all his stuff too. Yeah. I've well, actually worked with, with, with Charlie. I was talking to him on the phone like one month, uh, one week before he died. So oh. Charlie, uh, Louis in some regard, and Dr. Hatfield were my three biggest influences when it comes to performance training. I can hear it. I can hear it in your voice and what you're talking about. But what you just mentioned about putting the big lifts at the end of the workout, middle of the workout, then back to the first, I've never heard of anyone. I'm that. not going to lie. It's something I tried by accident. <laughs> I'm gonna try. I was working with a CrossFit athlete. Okay. And, okay, and I need to like issue a warning. Results might not be typical. Mm -hmm. The guy was a freak. When I say a freak, guy like had slabs of muscle upon slabs of muscle looked like Channing Tatum was tall was good at every sport he played like the guy we hate right yeah. anyway he, he was a, a, a crossfit coach at uh, one of the, the the centers I was training people at like I, I trained a lot of crossfit athletes but only for the Olympic lifts uh, several made regionals or I have like four or five at the crossfit game anyway so he came to me and said, well, I, I need to improve my Olympic lifting. The guy was like super, he was pretty, right? Well, he was strong, not super strong. He was strong, like 400 squat, uh, like 325, 335 front squat. Uh, decent, strong for a, uh, for a regional level CrossFit athlete. Mm -hmm. And his Olympic lifts were not technically sound. Well, he was decent, but like not enough to, be, to maximize his strength. And he was just not strong enough overall everywhere. To, to like lift big snatchers. He was snatching like 105 kilos. He was clean and jerking 135. Mm -hmm. So what we did at first was we did a periodization, uh, 12 weeks periodization. So he, he stopped doing CrossFit for 12 weeks, just did the Olympic, like a, a true Olympic lifting workout. And we would have a snatch day, a jerk day, a clean and jerk day, and a total day. Okay. Mm -hmm. And on the, on the snatch day, the first phase, the snatch would be last. We would have four exercises before the snatch. And, and that was like high poles, overhead squats, and snatch grip deadlifts, for example. Lifts that train every phases of the lift individually. Mm -hmm. And we would have the jerk day, which would be, for example, uh, strict shoulder press, push presses, then military press from a, a, a split position or uh, like a, a quarter front squat just to train that, that drive, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact exercises. They would change every phase anyway. Uh, and then the second phase, we put the, the, the snatch or the, the competitive itself, the snatch, the, the jerk, the clean or the clean and jerk. Uh, we would put it uh, third in the workout instead of fifth. Then the next phase, it was second. 
And the last phase, we train Bulgarian style, which means that we had the snatch and clean and jerk and front squat exclusively on the four days. That's all we did. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the cycle, he was snatching 135. He was clean and jerking 170. For a CrossFit guy, decent. I saw him. He was training with one of the, the, the CrossFitters that I was training that actually went to the CrossFit games. Uh, so he was late for a workout, and they had to do power cleans. I know they had to do, uh, yeah, power, uh, they had to do cleans, just, just regular cleans. So Alex, the guy I was training, was up to 150 kilos on cleans. And then Jason comes in and he's late. And Alex is pissed off because he needs everything to be regulated on time. And you can't join the workout. Yeah. So Jason just like put his short, shorts on, took the 150, no warm up, and did a power clean with it. So that, that's what I mean. Like the guys just. just started the saying you might be onto something here. <laughs> well, no, if, honestly, again, the guy was a freak because I put, I used a system with several guys after that, and they all progressed really well, but not to that extent. I had a guy. Uh, who was uh, 180 pounds, and he ended up snatching 300. Uh, uh, decent. His clean and jerk was, oddly enough, he barely clean and jerk more than he snatched because he was just a natural athlete. So he was extremely fast under the bar, so that he was pretty strong there. At 180, he was squatting like 500 at the end. So like he got very strong. Mm-hmm. So it worked pretty well. So I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to use that with powerlifters. Uh, and for different reasons, just to, because it, it does take the mental strain of having to perform. And that's, by the way, that's one of the benefits I see with bands and chains. It takes the mental strain of, you know what, you don't actually know how much you're pressing. Because depending, I've, I've never used this, I never use the same amount of band tension or chain tension. The ratio of bar weight or band weight always changes. Yes. So it's, so it's your, le- your levers affect that too, right? Yeah, I have a short arms. Some people have long arms, long legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you don't. Act, you can write down. Okay, I did. Like for example, this morning I did squats. I had uh, four twenty-five, and I had uh, thirty pounds of chains per side. I have no fucking idea <laughs> to what that is equivalent to when doing regular squats. I was a safety bar squat on top of it, so there's like zero way I can know how much that is equivalent to on a squat. Now, when I train power lifters, I actually use more of a Bulgarian approach. I stick with the competition lift as much as possible. Yeah. Because I need a measuring sticks. Mm-hmm. But if I train athletes, I actually want to take that mental strain of you need to bench X amount or squat X amount or deadlift X amount out of the equation. So that's why I actually like more of a conjugate approach with athletes. Mm-hmm. Not as much with powerlifters. With powerlifters, and that's probably because I come from Olympic weightlifting, I prefer to do the actual competition lift as much as possible. Yeah, keeping it. Keeping in, in that it. sense, I'm more like Fred, who was doing squat, bench, deadlift exclusively as his main lift, or like the Eastern European. Mm-hmm. And Fred was also. It's it's weird because you know what? Both Louis and Fred claim that they were inspired by Russian lifters. Russian weightlifters, mm-hmm. but the, the, you could not have two more different systems. So yes. it's really how you interpret the information you're reading, right? Mm-hmm. What Louis was looking at was more like what throwers were doing, like Bondarchuk, for example, who was rotating exercises every three or four weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have Fred, who was looking more at what the weightlifters were doing, and they were doing snatch, lean, and jerk squats. 
pulls pretty much exclusively. Mm -hmm. well, that's interesting. Never, I never heard that uh, variation before, but you're absolutely right now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. So off season, we do more variety just to stay sane because I know my training style when it comes to you know, competition preparation, it's boring. Mm -hmm. Boring. It's always the same stuff. I, I always say for power lifters, whoever can tolerate the most amount of boredom will have yep. the largest amount of success. Absolutely. And, make, and it's different in, and that's especially true in non-equip or classic powerlifting, mm -hmm. where technique plays a much bigger role. I'm not saying that geared lifters don't need to have good technique. First, the technique is not the same. You mentioned the example of your friend with a wider stance when doing equip because you can stretch the material more, you get more of a bounce. And when you were doing classic, you use more narrower stance because you don't have that benefit. Uh, but it's also true for the fact that the equipment stabilizes you. Mm -hmm. With yes. the bench shirt, it prevents excessive shoulder movement. And that was the, uh, the main reason why the bench shirt were developed in the first place. Same thing with the squat suit. It actually limits how much lateral and forward, backward shift you can have. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gives you feedback to tell you where your body's at because it's actually pushing or pulling against something. So, so I'm not saying you don't need good technique. But it's much harder to break form yeah. with gear. And the gear can actually compensate for technical mistakes in many regards, which is not the case with raw lifting. So raw lifting, they need to focus more on the actual competition, competition lifts. And of course, the, the, the key muscles are different. Mm -hmm. uh, like when you're doing uh, like raw bench press, the chest is much more important than when you do obviously equipped powerlifting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always funny. You'll see like a world record bench presser classic shirts off. Big delts, big packs, big tries, big arms. And then sometimes you might oh, see uh, an equipped, a weak point. Yeah, equipped, equipped lifters sometimes in, in a shirt, um, you know, the shirt's off. You're like, oh, it doesn't really look the same, right? right? Yeah, exactly. different. Same thing with it. They have no quads. They have huge hamstrings and, and big glutes, but they have no quads. Look yeah. at that. Like raw part lifters, they all have dominant quads. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't have a weakness because the part where the suit is helping you out. Now you have to use your muscles to do most of the work in that part. So you, you can't have those holes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of master lifters gravitate towards, ironically, equipped lifting. And when you ask them, why would you choose that over a classic or raw? They'll always say, well, it doesn't hurt my joints as much, which is funny because you would think most people would be like, well, it's an overload. You're using 110, 115% of your max. But what you just said, it stabilizes you. Right, exactly. When you're getting older, you're getting broken down, you put a bench shirt on, it's going to stabilize you. A squat suit is going to stabilize you. Stabilization is actually, and, and that's an interesting topic in itself. I believe that there are two types of, of joint stabilization, active and passive. Obviously, the shirt, for example, is the extreme case of passive stability. But you can actually uh, have uh, several other factors, like tissues in your body, the mm -hmm. amount of muscle mass you carry the amount of water retention you have, uh, intracellular, intramuscular fat, or even fat itself, all that stuff will pack a joint. Like around the shoulder area, for example, you have, let's say you have a big delt, you have uh, thick muscles, you have your super tight, right? Like those big guys who can't have lots of range of motion. Well, actually, it actually stabilizes you. I remember I was uh, training a guy who was playing defensive tackle for the 49ers, freak. That was power cleaning 500, bench pressing 500, just a, like a freak of nature. And we were doing gymnastic rings work. I mean, that was my phase of doing crazy stuff. The guy was 300, and he could do a back lever. A back lever is when you're basically holding by the rings, so you, and your, your torso 
is facing the floor. So yeah. you're in a straight line with your body and you, but the thing it's normally you, you're using muscle strength to hold you there, but his shoulders were so stiff that it actually, he could not reach further back. So that actually held him in place. So that's an example of extreme tissue creating stability. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use myself as an example. Uh, uh, like about like 10, 12 years ago, when I was at my strongest on a bench press, uh, I was bench pressing twice a week on Wednesday and on Saturday. And on, on a Wednesday, I, I did uh, 425 for a double. Then on a Friday night, my wife and I spent like three hours in the hot tub. Uh, and doing, and we're married, so we didn't have sex, we didn't drink. So it was like boring. Literally just spent life. time in the hot tub. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but I was actually super dehydrated and went straight to, straight to bed after that. The next morning, I went to my workout. I was actually feeling pretty well, feeling loose. And I failed at 365. Mm. When I went unracked the bar, it felt like my joints were torn apart because mm. I lost so much water that my joints were not packed. So there was a lot less stabilization going on, less passive or, or, uh, or passive stabilization. Mm -hmm. So actually, my, my body felt, you know what, you're going to kill yourself. So it, it shut down my muscles. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's oftentimes what happens when a lifter drops a weight class. Yeah. And and hundred times out of ten, or maybe ninety nine, their assistance work. Let's say they do isolation work, uh, tricep extension, pec deck, which is a shitty move, but still just to, for lateral raises. It's all the same strength as before. Yet mm -hmm. their bench press is down fifty pounds. Mm -hmm. All the muscles involved are just as strong as they were individually. But yet when you bench press, you just can't bench press like shit because you lost that stabilization. That's also why with lifters, especially when they need to drop weight, I want them to spend as much time as possible on the competition lift because we can work on that creating a, a greater stability. And if your technique is a lot more repeatable and stable, then you don't suffer as much from that drop in, in passive stability. Especially when you do uh, like two hour weigh-ins versus 18 versus 24. I mean, a two hour weigh-in, if you're dropping a weight class, you're, you're dropping a bunch of water and sodium, you depleted, you only got two hours to replenish. And you always see athletes go out there and they get a hamstring cramp on the bench, a rectal cramp on the bench, and, or they hit three out of nine lifts. They're like, I don't know what happened. And you're 100% right. They've lost the stability. They've lost the output. And that's the thing, right? Because you can actually replenish some water. Uh, it's like 125 milliliters per 15 minutes that you can actually store uh, uh, in the tissues. So you can regain some of that water rate. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it will stay in your stomach where that can actually hurt, but you can't replenish electrolytes as fast. Mm -hmm. And even if you put some sodium in there, some potassium in there, you're going to do more harm than good because you don't know the exact ratio you need. If you end up having too much sodium, you can actually cramp. If you have too much potassium, you can have uh, orthostatic hypotension. So you, you will black out when squatting, for example, one deadlifting, which you don't want. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's really hard. That's why I don't like drastic weight cuts, especially when it comes to like using dehydration to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I was talking to a, a mixed martial art, a pro mixed martial art, guys, I'm going to start trading uh, last week, actually. And we were discussing weight drops because he normally drops like 20 pounds to make weight. I said, dude, there's no way you'll be the best version of yourself. Yeah, but the guys are smaller. Yeah, but you're like at 20% of your gain. 
I, unless you are making $200,000 as a pro for a fight, just go there and, and feel the best you can, perform the best you can. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're a powerlifter, okay, unless you are going for a world record or to qualify or win the national championships, to go to world championships, something like that, what does it matter if you're, finish, you're finishing second in uh, 180 or finishing third at 198? Yeah. Nobody fucking cares, right? Nobody, Nobody cares. And that's, a, that, that's something that people should understand. You'll get positive comments on Facebook and on Instagram, but nobody fucking cares. Nobody. Not even your mother. My parents, my wife, nobody knows how much I lift. They don't know. There's like five people I compete against around the same stuff. And we all know each other's lifts because we're all competitive with each other. But my own wife who competes in powerlifting or used to has no idea what I've ever lifted before. Exactly. Yeah, and when we talk about uh, cutting weight, John Connor, who was McGregor's, is McGregor's strength coach, right? And uh, McGregor used to do these crazy weight cuts. You'd see him up there, and his face was all caved in. And I remember someone in an interview they they said a similar thing. They're like, "Is Connor cutting too much? Where he's losing too much of his ability?" And uh, John Connor said, "A lot of guys lose their ability, but Connor's that much better than them that he maintains it. So even Connor at twenty percent less is still superior to the other guys in his day." And some people can actually do that. I mean, I, I honestly don't know the reason. There might be several physiological factors involved, like Naomi, for example, even when she's severely dieting down, her performance do not drop at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. So we can actually handle a bit more weight drop in her case. So mm-hmm. training heavier allows her to lift more weight in training because we know that even if she has to drop 10 kilos, she, she's still going to retain her strength. Uh, but most people are not like that. And of course, that's for strength. But, but we're same thing about endurance, same thing about speed. Uh, then you do it by dehydration. You lose sodium. Sodium is important in so many different physical action, especially muscle contraction, muscle relaxation. So you, you actually drop your performance. And sometimes you can easily see it in fighters. I, I remember I was uh, watching GSP's comeback a few years ago, and he walked up to the ring, and he looked different. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't have that muscle quality. I mean, he, you could see he was the same size. But he was sluggish. He looked slower. Uh, he still won. He still won because he was, again, he was overmatching his opponent. But you could see he was not the typical GSP. And what I learned, because I actually used to train his coach, was that the weight cut, that's the first time in his life he actually used a nutritionist. Mm. The nutritionist messed him up. Yeah. Because, you, know, you know your body better than everybody else. And if you always end in a certain way and it works, well, it's for a reason. Like, for example, GSP used to be huge on McDonald's. People don't know that. But what you have plenty of when you eat McDonald's is sodium. Mm-hmm. You go from that to completely like almost a, like bio-nutrition. Sodium becomes super low. Potassium becomes super high. It messes up your ratios. Mm-hmm. And you can't be your best self. I'm not saying to eat McDonald's, but what you're saying, listen up now. Anyone listening, Christian Thibodeau says to be a UFC fighter, eat McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I'm saying is that when you should not make drastic changes in the food you eat mm-hmm. uh, when you're preparing for a contest, because you, even though it's on paper healthier, the time your body adjusts to the different micronutrients ratio, you could actually perform worse. Yeah. You might perform better, but you don't know yet. So if you want to introduce those changes, 
you make them sooner during your off season mm -hmm. when you have time to make adjustment or, or, or to adapt to the nutrition. Yeah. Chris, this, uh, this time on the podcast has been absolutely valuable for myself and I definitely know um, my listeners. Well, uh, formally, thank you so much for coming on the project fitness podcast. You, you're, you're in lockdown. You're going to, you're going to beat your 40 time here in, you know, in the winter. Oh, what, what else is going on over at uh, Tim Arby, Tim Nation, Tim Nation there? What do you got going on in the next six months? What could anyone expect to see? Uh, I really want to uh, put out more material out there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redo all the courses, the online courses. Mm -hmm. I just filmed one on how to become more explosive because that's the way my brain works. I only want to write about or create about what I'm doing because that's what I'm passionate about at that moment. Uh, so we're going to have more new courses, changing the format, more like short courses, like 90 minutes, yeah. maybe two hours, uh, more practical demonstrations. Uh, I'm starting writing a lot more articles. I used to write like one a month. I want to have one a week. Mm -hmm. And I want to also produce a lot more YouTube material. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I kind of got like pissed about the, about the YouTube thing because I, I felt like I was putting out great material and people were, the comments kind of agreed with that. But it's so hard to get your, your viewership or your followers up on YouTube because of the algorithm stuff. Mm. And I kind of lost patience about it because I felt, you know what, I'm putting quality material. We were spending lots of time editing it. And it's just not taking off the way I, I think it should. Uh, but I, I'm going to be, be more patient about it. I mean, we have time right now. So uh, I'm going to spend more time creating. Hopefully, we can start doing seminars in person soon. Mm -hmm. uh, to cancel several dates so far, uh, yeah. most of Europe. Yeah, there's a whole bunch that's been shut down all over the world. Yeah. Um, it, it is obvious you're very passionate about what you do, so I appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast okay. here. And um, I, I look forward to hopefully seeing some of the new stuff that you're going to be putting out and being a participant and a student of you, as I have been since uh, back in the day when you told me to stop training my mirror muscles. So super excited to see anything else coming out. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was awesome, man. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.